So if you'd like to open your Bibles at Numbers chapter 12. As we start, let me remind you of a, a few words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 5 said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Seems an odd thing to say, actually. I mean, you wouldn't think the meek would inherit the earth. But that's what Jesus said. So as we come to this passage, we find the people are on the move. And as soon as they start to move, at once things start to go wrong. These places that are mentioned here, we don't know their exact locations, but from the text it's clear they're somewhere in the desert of Paran, and they're heading towards Kadesh Barnea, on the borders of Canaan. And the people, as we saw last week, were starting to grump. There was dissension among the people over food. And you'll remember that part of the solution to that challenge was to extend the leadership team of the people by specially commissioning 70 elders. It's uh, likely that they were, elders were already there in place, as it were, but they were uh, given a special anointing of the Holy Spirit to take on that role. But extending the leadership team brings the seeds of another problem, or at least it can do. And this was hinted at in the previous chapter with two of the elders refusing to come to the meeting tent in chapter 11, 26, and an objection raised by Joshua, another one of the leaders, in chapter 11, 28. And in this section, the writer here addresses the problems of leadership head on. And he gives us what you might consider to be a particularly piquant or sharp example, because the problem here is within Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, and of course, these three are not just the leaders of the people, but are quite literally, of course, brothers and sister, They're siblings. Miriam, as far as we can tell, seems to have been the eldest. If you are familiar with the story of the birth of Moses, you will know that it was uh, Miriam, who, Miriam's quick thinking, really, that both saved Moses' life when she was found in the... Um, in the rushes by Pharaoh's daughter, both saved Moses' life and also by recruiting Moses' mother as a nurse, actually um, making sure that Moses didn't leave, lose contact with his roots and just disappear into the palace culture. So um, Miriam was, uh, as I say, she was obviously a very quick-thinking girl at that time. Now she must have been in her 90s or around that age. So it's some time under the bridge, a lot of water under the bridge since then. But she was still um, a significant person in leader, one of the leaders of the people, as we'll look in a minute. But now it turns out there's an argument amongst the three siblings. And why does the writer tell us this? Well, if he, if he bothers to tell us, it must be because he wants us to learn something from it. So we need to look at this dispute in order to see what we can learn from it. 
Now, although the, um, this is not actually a chiasm exactly, it is true that the structure and the dynamic is, is, is very Hebrew because, in a sense, the central spiritual high point of the discussion in the center is from verses 6 to 8. And so it might seem more natural for us Westerners to address this section at the end. And I did wonder whether to do that, but I thought, actually, the narrative is driven... The, the dynamic of the narrative heads towards the restoration of Miriam and then the waiting and the moving on. So let's uh, keep that structure, even though it may seem a, a little bit odd to us when we... Uh, it means, in fact, that the, in a sense the most important bit, if you like, is in the middle, but um, that's the way the, the passage was written. So let's uh, work to that structure. And I'd like to look at it under, as I, you can see on the screen there, under these four headings. First of all, we'll look at issues of plurality and diversity and dissension. Sorry about the long words, but it seemed the best description of it. And then we'll, we will look at this central section where it talks about Moses as being the special prophet. And then we'll move on to address the issues concerned with the restoration of Miriam to her place. And finally, we'll look at the last verse. We could easily forget the last verse, but it's there for a reason. And it reminds us that they moved on. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. So that's the way we're going to divide up the passage this evening. So the first thing to notice here is that leadership can be a burden. It is a burden in a sense. And that no one person should or can carry the entire burden of leadership. We've already seen that amongst these ancient Israelites there were 70 elders and below them, presumably, the heads of families, clans and families. In the New Testament church, there wasn't one apostle, there were 12 apostles. And as we read about the establishment of the churches in the book of Acts, we don't find that Paul appointed one elder in each church, but he appointed elders, plural. Indeed, this is actually, I think, a particular case of a more general principle that we are designed to work in teams. We shouldn't be working alone. So we have this uh, passage of Ecclesiastes. I've just put the first two lines up on the screen. Let me read the whole thing to you. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I suppose that last line is just to... So he's not necessarily recommending two, but the point is that there's more than one. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. But of course there is a problem there also. If two can defend themselves, it's also true that two can disagree. 
and fight one another. And notice that the point here, of course, is that the point of sharing leadership is not that the leaders shall all be identical clones. They, should, they shouldn't all be doing the same thing and thinking in the same way. That's exactly what we don't want. There should be diversity. Diversity is essential. And in our passage here, Mayor Moses, the lawgiver, Aaron the high priest, and Miriam, whose role seems to have been particularly to lead the women in worship, we find that in Exodus 15 verse 20, had different roles. And yet the answer to the question in chapter 12 verse 3, has the Lord not spoken through us also? Of course the answer is yes. Um, they, the, the Lord had spoken through Aaron and through Miriam. And the Hebrew word dabar, which comes all through this chapter, perhaps more literally means speak with than speak through. So some translations say, does the Lord not speak with us also? It's apparently a different word. The word used in verse 4, amar, just means to say or to answer. But the word dabar seems to imply, imply this idea of conversation. But it also, I mean, the literal meaning is, is, is words. And this idea of hearing the words of the Lord actually runs through the whole chapter here. But just think about some other examples before we dive into that. We have four gospel writers, don't we? And we don't have four gospel writers that they can all write the same thing. Well, the four gospels are different. We have these sort of theological and philosophical discussions that we get in John's gospel. And you might contrast that with the approach of Luke, the, the cool, careful historian who more or less just says, these are the facts, go and figure it out for yourself. The gospels are different. And as I've already said, we had 12 apostles. And they weren't all 12 identical apostles either. I mean, just think, we had Peter, who was, of course, well known to have been impulsive and always the first one was dived in first. We've got John, as we've already said, was the more thoughtful and philosophical turn of mind. We've got Thomas the skeptic. He had a role to play when the resurrection of Jesus appeared to the, some of the other apostles and he wasn't there. He says, I, I won't believe it until I touch him myself. Thomas was there for a reason so that we might indeed say, well, yeah, we might be skeptics too. But Thomas was there and he, he didn't believe it either until he touched the, uh, the risen Christ. And we have Philip, not, not uh, Philip the evangelist, the deacon, but Philip the apostle, who seems to have been the approachable one. We find that often people wanted to come and talk to Jesus. They, they, they came on a couple of occasions. I think we read they came via Philip, who seems to have been the, the one that was easy to approach. We have 12 different apostles. Later on, of course, we have the th Paul, the, the theologian, 
the leaders are supposed to be different. They're not supposed to be all the same. And it's worth bearing that in mind. But of course, if we have both plurality of leaders, if we have several leaders, and if we want them to be different, we want them to be diverse, then that does, of course, carry with it both a challenge and a temptation. And that's what the um, writer is trying to show us, I think, in this passage. Well, why do I say that? Well, first of all, what is the challenge? The challenge is that different leaders will do things differently. Sometimes it may even be necessary to call another leader to account. I think it's not that the object... The problem here is not that they called Moses to account over his wife. I'll say a bit about them in a minute. Sometimes that is necessary. So we know that Paul confronted Peter, for instance, in Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14. In our passage, it seems that Miriam and Aaron objected to Moses having a non-Israelite wife. It says a Cushite, which is slightly puzzling, because the wife we know of, of course, is Zipporah, who was certainly not an Israelite, but she wasn't a Cushite, she wasn't an Egyptian either, she was a Midianite. And so the reference is slightly puzzling. Was it actually Zipporah, who maybe perhaps had some connection with Cush that we don't know about? Or was it... um, some other wife had Moses taken another wife although if that's the case we don't read about it anywhere else so was there any justification for the charge that Aaron and Miriam had raised we're not really told although the wording of verse 8 would suggest not but you can see why they raised it Moses himself had said that people should not take foreign wives but of course I think that was intended to be qualified with a wife who would not if the wife converted to Judaism, of course, and, and would follow the Lord, then that wasn't a problem. I think that's the qualification. But you can see why they complained, in a sense. But we're not actually told, really, whether the charge has any basis or not. Although, as I say, that verse 8 would seem to suggest that it didn't. But that's because the reason we're not told is because that's not the point. The writer wants us to pull on another thread here. He wants us to see the trap and the temptation that Miriam and Aaron actually fell into, verse 2, but that Moses managed to avoid. And that is because disagreement began to change into rivalry and competition. And instead of worrying about the state of the people, Miriam and Aaron started to become more concerned, didn't they, with their own status in the kingdom and with the actual question at hand. That's uh, clear from that verse where he says, hasn't the Lord spoken to us also? And so what might have started perhaps as a genuine concern turns into a power struggle. And that's a temptation, I think, for any management or leadership team anywhere. If, if you, ha- you need multiple leaders, but you need a management team. But by a management team, you're going to get people doing things in different ways and, and uh, leading in different ways. That's a, ch- that's a problem for any management team anywhere. But it's a particularly acute problem when it comes to leaders of God's people. Why is that? Well, it is because the leaders of people are spiritually equipped. 
And as we've said, the answer to the question of verse 2 is yes. Aaron and Miriam are prophets. Their calling is, is genuine. And yet, they came to a disagreement. The fact that they do, that it was true that the Lord spoke to Aaron and Miriam was, um, was in a sense, the cause of the, the problem because it didn't seem to come out quite the same. And I think that's the, the issue that um, actually the, the writer deals with in this middle section. But how can Christian leaders avoid this trap? And the short answer, I think, is verse 3. To seek that much underrated virtue of meekness or humility, if you want to translate it that way. That's the short answer to the question. That uh, Moses was meek. Um, Aaron and Miriam, at the time at least, weren't. They needed to learn that meekness and humility. But in the next verses, the Lord expands on this theme, um, but also deals with the unique nature of this particular power struggle, because there was something special. It wasn't just an ordinary disagreement among the leaders. There was something special in this particular case. So we'll look at this cent central section now, which is actually a poem of 11 lines that just before the actual words of the poem itself, which starts at verse 6, just look at the previous verse, verse 5, and observe the, um, in case you missed it, observe the, the dramatic irony here. On this particular occasion, the Lord spoke to Miriam and Aaron, not in a vision or a dream or a riddle, which is what he's going on to say, but in the same way as to Moses, didn't he? He appeared at the tent of meeting in the cloud and spoke to them from the cloud. And so here the message is crystal clear. But then we move on to these, uh, ele this 11-line poem. Which unusually for a Hebrew poem is not in, trip in twos but in threes. Lines are organized in threes. But the first line of it, which sometimes the, um, well, certainly in the NIV, the, the formatting doesn't make quite clear, but the first line of the poem is, listen to my words, because that sets the theme for the rest of it. And again, the word is the bar for words, but it says, the Lord is speaking here to, to Aaron and to Miriam and says, well, you, are, you claim to be prophets. Indeed, you are prophets. So shouldn't you be listening to what the Lord actually has to say? And again, the Hebrew word here implies that you listen carefully. You pay attention. You give heed. We might say in the modern idiom, now listen up. Pay attention. And the word for words is dabar again say this uh, idea of the Lord conversing, talking to his people runs all the way through this poem. And this whole poem is about words and speaking. And then, first of all, the Lord points out that sometimes the 
message of the Lord, even through a prophet, can be enigmatic. He says here, doesn't he, that a prophet does hear the words of the Lord, but he does so in visions and dreams. And then in verse 8, verse eight he talks about, again, a difficult word to translate. Most versions translate it riddles. But it, the meaning seems to be you know, not like an English riddle, which is sort of puzzled to guess, but rather an enigmatic saying, a, a a saying you're, you know, perhaps it's, it's more like the, the sort of Zen, you know, who, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Something that you're supposed to think about and, and encourage your thinking to learn from. That seems to be what it means by a riddle or an enigmatic saying. The same uh, idea comes in, um, in, in uh, Proverbs, where the words of the wise are riddles that we're supposed to think about and that is actually a little strange isn't it because we would think that when the spirit comes we ought to understand everything and yet what the spirit tells us is in fact is that we don't understand everything <laughs> in fact what we, when the spirit comes what we understand is that we don't understand everything and we gain the moral certainty that we're morally unfitted to the task, as verse 8 suggests here. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? There's a moral failure here, not just an intellectual failure. There's both. There's an intellectual failure to fail to understand what the Lord really required and, what, and the way that the word of the Lord works. But there's also a moral failure. And both of course are related but they're both there so any preacher and any leader and any Christian indeed who has not grasped both these facts that we don't always fully understand what the Lord says and that always our understanding or our lack of understanding is not just an intellectual failure but a moral failure if we don't grasp those two things, we're in danger and heading for a fall. And so if we lack meekness, if we find that meekness isn't our thing, then med meditating on this passage ought to help. But of course the Lord also points out here that this particular disagreement is rather a special case. Because he says there is actually a difference between the word as it came from Moses and the word as normally comes to a prophet. Because we're told here that Moses is the faithful steward. Moses is the foster parent, the steward, the, the overseer, who's put in charge of the household. And we're told that he has, in a sense here, a clearer vision than your average prophet. <laughs> that he sees, we're told, the form of the Lord. And yet, not actually his face. If we look at Exodus 33, we find that he doesn't see the face of the Lord, but he does see the form of the Lord. Whatever exactly that means, perhaps it's not clear. But it's meant to see obviously to suggest that Moses sees the Lord perhaps in a clearer way than the other prophets. And so to speak 
to Baal, again, it is against Moses, is to undermine the peace of the household because he is the one that the, that the, the Lord has set as the faithful steward over the household. So there is a particular problem with speaking against Moses because to speak against Moses is to question the wisdom of the Lord himself. And Moses really was the key figure in Israelite history. Abraham was the father and the original recipient of the promise. And there were great kings, David and Solomon. And there were numerous faithful prophets. But it was Moses and the law of Moses which really defined what the nation was. There is a sense, if you think about it, what in which any nation is defined by its law, isn't it? That's why we have all these arguments in favour and against Brexit. It's a matter of law, ultimately. The law is a codification of what a nation is about, isn't it? Of its values and ways of doing things and operating principles. And a different law will mean a different culture. I mean, I just thought I'd give you an example of this. Uh, Lindsay's not here tonight, is she? But uh, we don't have an American here tonight. But uh, just think of, of the British culture and American culture. Now, in many ways, of course, the British and American constitutions and laws are quite similar. But there are some ways in which they're different. And one way in which the Constitution is different is the American Constitution gives all its citizens the right to bear arms which is not true under the UK Constitution. Now, I'm not going to argue about whether that's a good thing or the bad thing. I'm just telling you that is the case. And in all sorts of practical ways, for better or worse, that makes differences between British and American society, doesn't it? I mean, you've only got to watch the American cop shows and the British cop shows to see that. They're different. That one law... The difference of that one law makes a cultural difference between the Americans and the British. And so in that sense, it's Moses as the lawgiver who was the founder of the Israelite nation. And Moses, we're told, is the faithful steward over the whole house. And so in challenging Moses, Miriam and Aaron threatened the very foundation of the nation. And yet it's also worth noting that the Lord's words are very precise here. They may be enigmatic, but they're enigmatic because they're so precise. And what the Lord says here is that even Moses' authority is not absolute. He is the faithful steward, but he's not the householder himself. He sees the form of the Lord but he doesn't see his face. And of course, as we read on in uh, Numbers and in the other books of the Pentateuch, we find that Moses himself was far from perfect. And in fact, in the end, he failed to enter the promised land because of um, a failure on his part. So that begs the question, doesn't it? If Moses is the faithful steward... Who is the householder? Was it perhaps King David? And yet David 
submitted to the law of Moses. The law, he didn't really make much difference to the law of Israel. He largely just kept the Mosaic law. Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? Because we've got the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews comments on this particular passage, this particular poem, this particular phrase, as Moses being the faithful servant in all my house. So let me uh, read it. This passage in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, which tells us who the faithful, true heir, who the true heir is, and indeed who is the true high priest, and who is the true prophet as well. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, says the following. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Notice the emphasis of the word servant there, which is what the steward means. Servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold to our courage and the hope of which we boast. It is Moses who sees the form of the Lord, but it is Jesus Christ who talks with the Father face to face. It is Christ who is not just the steward, but the householder, the son and the heir. <coughs> and what should we learn from this? Well, there are still enigmatic sayings in the scriptures. There are still things we do not fully understand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now I understand in part. It's only then that I will understand fully. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, that should control our attitude to and treatment of others. That was the problem that Miriam and Aaron had, wasn't it? That they didn't realize, that because they thought that because they understood some things, then they understood everything. And the Lord had to point out to them that they didn't. And therefore we need to listen to each other's opinions. Other people's understanding might be as good or better than our own. And, but at the center of this, we remember that just as Moses was the faithful lawgiver, the faithful steward over the house, so Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we see the Lord clearly. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In other words, he is the true Adam, as we were thinking this morning. Who is it was created in the image of God? It was Adam. But Adam's image was defaced. And so if we want to see the Lord clearly, then who do we look at? Well, not at Aaron or Miriam, not even at Moses, but at the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because he is the true image of the invisible God 
and the firstborn, the heir of all creation, the true Adam. So, if we were writing this in terms of Western culture, that's where I'd stop. But the writer doesn't stop there, actually. And I thought I would uh, go on and complete the, um, the rest of the passage. Because it actually addresses a delicate question. Can a leader who exhibited some moral failure be restored to their position? If you think of um, what the sort of general attitude among the evangelical churches today, I think you would say that most certainly not. And yet, the case of Miriam suggests that sometimes at least, there can be a restoration. She was a prophet. She was a leader of the women. Of the women, she was of value to the people of God. And in the, her case, at least, she was restored. And I, I think, as we consider this question, we have to illuminate that by what's gone before. The first thing, of course, is that if we demand moral perfection and uh, moral perfection and unerring knowledge from our leaders then you know what will happen. We won't have any leaders at all. I think that was the words of Edith Schaefer, wasn't it? If you demand protection or, if you demand perfection or nothing, then you know what you'll get. But on the other hand, of course, the integrity and peace of the people of God must not be threatened. The church mustn't be held up to public condemnation or any charge of hypocrisy. And of course, in some cases, for example, the mistreatment of a child, reinstatement might not even be legal, let alone morally justifiable. Um, And of course, there is always a risk of the failure being repeated. Yet it seems that even in the case of a public sin like that of Miriam but in this case at least restoration was not out of the question and perhaps one could also point out that sometimes those who have learned the hardest lessons might be the best qualified to pass those lessons on why was Peter so so good at feeding the flock why did Jesus say to him feed my sheep Well, in a sense, it was a result of his own failure, the understanding that the the sheep needed supporting and leading and and, um, feeding. So, I think this is always going to be a difficult question. But at least, we can see that at least two things must be needed before any leader can be restored um, up to their position. First of all, there must be a genuine repentance. And we find that, don't we, in verse 11. And we notice actually that although it was Miriam who got the skin disease, it was actually Aaron who had to make the apology. And um, it is Aaron who said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we we have so foolishly committed. There was a genuine apology. He acknowledges Moses' lordship there, you notice. You don't normally address your brother as lord, but here he does. 
And he says, we've, made a fool, we've foolishly committed a sin. There's a folly, and of course folly in Hebrew thought always has a moral dimension to it. It's not just, as I say, it's not just an intellectual failure, it, it's a moral failure. And then he has to pray to, to, well, he prays interestingly to Moses for forgiveness for Miriam that her disease will be taken away. And Moses actually cries out to the Lord to heal her. And although it doesn't explicitly say so here, we, we, the other pas- the different passages of Scripture and the implication here is that she was, of course, healed. And yet that wasn't the end of it. Because there had to be a period of uncleanness. And we get this rather thing. If, if, if the woman is just dishonored by her father, there would be a, had to be a, a period of uncleanness. And this, in a sense, is a much greater dishonoring. And so there is this period, only of seven days in this case, but a period of uncleanness. And I think... Um, you could say, well, this is just a ritual thing, but I think actually it's more than that. I think that in this situation, there needs to be a time for reflection. Reflection both by the, the person who has fallen into this problem, but also a reflection on the part of the people. You can't expect things to be right instantly. There has to be a, a time to... To, to reflect on it and for sort of, you know, I suppose for emotions to settle down and for people to take a, a, a more balanced view and for consider forgiveness and so on. So I think that we shouldn't just think of this period of uncleanness as a, as a, as a kind, of, kind of just a ritual thing. I think there's probably a real reason for it and that it's good advice. If some elder or some leader is caught in a sin, then while restoration in certain circumstances may not be impossible, there probably should be a a delay, a time of delay. And I think that would apply for any, not just for elders, but for any Christian leader or anybody really who has any role or function in the kingdom. That when that trust has been, um, what's the word I mean, the the trust has, has not been justified, trust that people have put in him had not been justified then there needs to be a time of reflection on both sides and I think that's that's good advice but perhaps we do go too far in our modern churches I, I mean it's always going to be a problem isn't it but how many genuine gifts have been lost to the church through the moral failure of the recipients I guess that many of us wouldn't be too challenged to produce a lengthy list Can they be restored to positions of leadership? This passage at least suggests that we shouldn't reject the idea out of hand, but I think it's, it's always going to be a very delicate business and it's always going to be something that requires care and certainly no cover-up should be allowed because we don't want to open ourselves to the accusation of hypocrisy. So that's an open question, I think. I don't think this solves all the problems, but it does at least make us think don't think that just because some Christian leader has made a mistake, that certainly means that there should not be any, you know, that, that, that 
it's hopeless because often as I say like Peter the one who's made a mistake is better able to deal with those who might be in danger of making the same mistake so that's, uh, so that's always going to require care I think that, that particular issue but at least we say here that Miriam was restored as was Aaron of course to their positions within the kingdom as leaders of the people and later on in Numbers we read of their um, their death and burial and they're buried with all due ceremony as one might say we might get on to that later (coughs) and uh, oh yes I did want to point out it's not only Miriam has to wait a week but the people have to wait a week as well we find that in verse 15 the people couldn't move on until she was brought back people had to wait also but after that week then they do move on and I think the final message of this passage is precisely that that it is possible to move on the crisis was a severe crisis but it wasn't terminal it didn't defeat the whole expedition And by the grace of God, the church can survive even a fallout among its leadership or a moral failure of its key personnel. And again, I don't want to name names, but many of us are aware of churches who have survived exactly those things in very recent memory. And in this passage, it's the meekness and the patience and the forgiving nature of Moses the faithful servant isn't it which averted disaster Moses was not just right but uncaring judgment judgmental he actually prays for his sister for her healing and restoration It's this forgiving, meek nature, patient nature of Moses which averts here, averts the disaster. And um, I wanted to say that meekness can be misinterpreted. Humility can be misinterpreted. Meekness is not lack of moral courage. Moses was quite capable of standing up to Pharaoh quote those words of C.S. Lewis I believe said that humility doesn't consist in clever men thinking they're pretending they're stupid and beautiful women thinking pretending they're ugly I think that's what he said something like that anyway I should have looked it up and I hadn't but he said something like that that's not what humility is humility is having a, a, a true judgment of yourself and knowing that compared with the Lord, compared with Christ, then we are stupid and ugly. And to keep that in mind. But we should remember also that our leader is one greater even than Moses. We have a priest who is better qualified even than Aaron. 
because he has gone through the veil and doesn't just go in once a year and come out again. But he stands there pleading for us, for each of us, in our moral failures. We have a, a prophet who has more insight than Miriam did. And we have a leader who is meeker even than Moses, although in his case it's not because he is ugly or stupid. But he does describe himself as meek or humble, doesn't he? Lowly of heart. And that's, I think, because of his forgiving nature. He has compassion of us. He is the high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Which Aaron didn't do that in this occasion. And one who was never guilty of moral failure. And it's because we have such a high priest, such a prophet, such a captain, such a leader over the household, that it's both possible to move on and indeed it's necessary to move on. The people had to say part for a week, but then the time came when the Lord said, no, now you've got to move on. You've had this problem, but don't be defeated by it. Don't be undermined by it. It's time to move on. It's both possible and necessary to move on. So let me finish with these words from Hebrew that I've already quoted bits on, but let me just read those, those uh, few verses. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.